This morning we're going to wrap up a conversation we started last week, uh, just talking about what it looks like for us to uh, be involved in the people's lives around us. How we all get in this tunnel vision where we're just sort of, this is my lane, this is my area, this is my, uh, my, my commute, this is my uh, coffee shop, this is sort of my area, and anything beyond that is outside of our scope. We have blinders on, largely, where we just kind of can see what we want to see, and, and it's a beautiful, blissful life where we don't have to see anything else, but what God is inviting us to do is to uh, take off the blinders, begin to look and see what's happening around us, and, and I love surprise endings. I love when I, uh, I haven't quite figured a movie out, when it takes an unexpected uh, turn or uh, some surprise catches me off guard. And, and I love stories that kind of start one way and end another. I love films that, where you think the main character is the main character, but it's not. Or the story's plots one way and it's not. It shifts. And today what we do is we continue our conversation looking at a story that Jesus tells. Where he talks about someone who is the least among us. He talks about a down and outer. And last week we looked at the Good Samaritan and the reality that we've been called to communicate and to reach and to help the people around us because the scripture keeps teaching us to value interdependence and community over selfishness. And yet we keep shrinking back to solve our own problems and God keeps inviting us into community, forming lives around something greater than our own desires and our own expectations and our own wants and needs. And it's very difficult to create community outside of ourselves. And I often uh, have found in my own life, and I hear from others, where you'll connect with someone, and you'll be like, well, I just don't uh, connect with them. I just don't have much in common with them, and I don't like them. They're not perfect. We're always looking for perfect people to connect with, because we're also perfect. And uh, perfect people demand perfect people in community. And yet what I've come to realize in my wise old age is that uh, there are no perfect people, meaning there cannot be perfect community. And so we build community around the nuances of our personalities and our desires. And yet if I decide that I'm going to help and support you and you decide you're going to help and support me, it stops becoming about what I want or what I need. And then we start creating a community that's more uh, beautiful and it's more fluid. And, and today we're going to talk about the invisible man. Like all of Jesus' stories, the story of the invisible man, it's not uh, an isolated one. It's not uh, completely connected to uh, itself. It's actually part of a larger story. This is a meta story. And, and when we decide to look at this story, we, we begin to bring some context, but there's only so much we can cover here. But this is a verbal witness to the interconnectedness of all of us. The reality that we need one another, that we are interdynamically connected, and the stories that Jesus tells are not as they seem. They're meant to evoke a response, to sharpen us, to remind us that there's more happening around us. Their intended purpose is to call us to action and to make us aware of the world around us, the reality that there's more happening than just us, that in our lives, we all feel like we're the main character of our story, and you're the, you're the, the extra You're an extra in my story, and I'm an extra in your story. And a lot of us live with this, maybe not intentionally. You wouldn't uh, verbalize it that way, but we live as if we're the main character, right? When you're in traffic, everyone else is traffic. You're not traffic because you're the main character, and everyone's supporting you, and there's heroes and villains, and, and it's all about my story. And what Jesus does throughout the Gospels is he keeps breaking us loose, saying you're not the main character of your story. Jesus is. And we all play a role in, in building up others' lives. And so this morning we turn to Luke chapter 13. And in the story we find two main characters, a, a well-dressed, wealthy person, man, and a poor man. 
And a poor man is named Lazarus, and their two lives, it couldn't be any more different. One was well-dressed and, and had lots to, 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 to live with. He had food and uh, a mansion and on and on. He was your quintessential wealthy person. The other was poor. He was covered in sores and, and left to beg. And he was your quintessential uh, poor person who was desperate and in need. And the divide between the rich and the poor is uh, obvious, not just in context of Scripture, but right here and now. And it's interesting to me that with all the advancements that we've uh, been able to see in, in, in every aspect of our lives, I mean, we've got AI basically uh, taking control, we've got uh, cars that can run themselves, like, there's a lot of advancement, yet we have not shrunk the gap between the haves and the have-nots. We still have those that are Rich and in power and those who are poor and in need. And this story is just that. The narrative continues to play out year after year, decade after decade, century after century. There's the haves and the have-nots, the poor and the rich. And the rich seem to get richer, which sheds more light on the poor. And in Luke 16, we understand the context of what's happening here through Scripture in verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and carried away uh, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and he saw Abraham a long way off, with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll do the best we can in the time we have. But the interesting thing about this story is that the rich man is likely seeing the poor man for the first time. All of a sudden, now he needs something from this man that Lazarus had largely been invisible for who knows how long at this man's gate begging for scraps that the dogs would eat and then lick his sores. And this is often how things work. We rarely see people until we need something from them. Often people, especially people who do not have anything that we find value in, are easy to ignore until we need something. The rich man likely passed Lazarus every day without noticing him. And there's a problem throughout human history where we see people for what they can do for us. We value people based on what they can provide, what they can offer. And the problem even now in the church exists where we value people based on the services they provide for us. And we're very careful and uh, overtly cautious here, especially in our newcomers meetings, where we don't want to value people for what they do, right? I I try my best not to ask the question, what do you do for a living? Do you play an instrument, right? Because uh, do you you love kids? Would you like to volunteer here? Do you have money? Can you give? I don't want to ask those questions because we don't want to value people based on what they can provide for us. We want to value people for who they are, who God has made them to be, and yet in our lives so often, When we meet someone, we go, okay, is this a person of importance? Do I need to know them? Should I get close? Do they have a vacation house that they don't use a couple of weeks out of the year that I could borrow? Do we we need to connect here? Because we're preconditioned to network, to connect, to build, 
Because we want our lives to be up and built onto the right. And if you don't have anything to offer me, we might connect, but the service is going to be based on what I can do for you so I can feel better about myself. Oh, you're poor. Well, I can help you. And now I feel better. Oh, you're rich. You can help me. And now I feel better. And a lot of our relationships are tend to be based on what we can offer one another. And power and wealth of this age, though, means nothing in the afterlife. And this story is a reinforcement of this reality that so many of us often forget is that all of this in the grand scheme of things is for nothing. The whole you can't take a hearse with you to the graveyard or whatever, you don't see a hearse following a grave, whatever. The idea that, that all the wealth that we accumulate is fine in this age and, and there's no condemnation on wealth, but it doesn't mean anything in the afterlife. It doesn't mean we don't still pursue those things. It just means that we live with the reality that they're going to go away. You can buy those things and have those things, and I want some of those things too. I was looking at a watch today. It was so far out of my price range, but it's fun to look because there are times when we desire things, but we have to remember and keep it at the forefront of our minds that that's not the reason we exist. And I know coming into this season, it's a lot harder to not be a consumer because we're force-fed consumerism, buy this, buy this, own this, give this. I made the joke with my kids that we weren't giving gifts this year. We were given affirmations. And I said, you need to store yours up because we're going to have several hours in the morning for Christmas to just praise one another. They weren't impressed. The idea, though, is that we have to fight consumerism. Buy, shop, do, give. But remember, those are not the points. The rich man suddenly needs something. He just wants a tiny drop of water. Can you imagine... Some of you can, most of us cannot. Can you imagine having everything that you could ever want, desire, and dream of? You're the kind of person that doesn't have to look at the menu price when you purchase your food, when you select your food, right? You're just, you got everything you need. And now you're begging for a drop of water to be humbled and reduced down to needing just a simple drop off of a poor man with sores on his body's finger, that the rich man suddenly needs something, and it's interesting how fast the power dynamic shifts. But isn't that the way it is in our lives, too? The power dynamic can shift in a heartbeat. For the past few months, uh, we've been talking more and more about what it looks like to fall in love with Christ. In these past two weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like for us to fall in love with our neighbor. And the idea is if we're going to love Christ, we've got to love our neighbor. If we're going to love our neighbor, we're going to love Christ. And, and sometimes that means loving the unlovable. Sometimes that means uh, taking care of the, the widow and the, and the people in, in, in poverty who can never give something back, but we don't do it for personal gain or self-glory. And here we have the rich and powerful needing something from the poor. And there's nothing wrong with having money and influence. The problem comes with how we use our money and how we use our influence. And this story is yet another example of the corruption that comes from power and influence and money. That often we fall in love with power and fall in love with money and it corrupts us. It's not that money is bad, it's what we do with it that matters. And maybe the story isn't about the rich man though. That many times when we read it, we go, well, yeah, we probably shouldn't fall in love with money. We probably need to be careful. Uh, I need to give it all away now or whatever. Okay, the story's about the rich man. But what if it's not about the rich man? I mean, Lazarus was the only one to actually get a name in the story. The rich man just gets a title. Can you imagine being reduced down to simply what you've done? That a lot of us think and we find value in what we've done and what we've accomplished. And when that's gone, we don't feel valuable anymore. 
We don't know who we are. The rich man was merely given a title. He's the rich man, but Lazarus in Scripture is actually given a name. The rich man's generalized. Lazarus is personalized. It's Lazarus. And even though Lazarus was invisible to the rich man, God took note of him. Even though he had been passed by at the gate and dogs were licking his sores, God had him in his hand. He hadn't forgot him or abandoned him. And not only did God notice Lazarus, but he took care of him. He provided for him. And for so many of us, we pursue the attention and the acceptance and the approval of man. And we lose sight of what's most important, which is God's approval, which is God's hand. The only approval and acceptance and attention we need is God's. And many times, we, get, we gain that by simply humbling ourselves before him. And this story reiterates God's acceptance and love for the poor and the outcast. It's so interesting how often the scriptures talk about the poor and the marginalized and the voiceless. That there are plenty of passages throughout the scripture that reinforce this message. The kingdom of God is going to be different than here on earth. It's different than how we've built up our own kingdoms here. Where God sees things dramatically different than we do. He says the last, they're going to be first. That God loves the unlovable that his love is so deep for the unlovable and so often we wrestle with that. And in Luke 16, 25, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides, all this great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. This is an interesting detail to this story. There's a great chasm between uh, heaven and hell, the afterlife, the divide between the haves and the have-nots, and the afterlife becomes great, and those who benefit in society and those who do not, there's a, a chasm between us, and you can't cross over once it's done, and every society finds a way to shut its eyes and put its fingers in the ears to not have to see the sick or the elderly or the poor. And yet one day, God says there's going to be evidence. We've created divides here on earth where we can't cross over. We have uh, socioeconomic status. If you're here, you know, we say in America you can become whatever you want, but can you? And we've created this caste system by and large. We put our sick in hospitals and elderly in nursing homes and our poor in in the slums. Our garbage goes into landfills. We separate We don't want to see, we don't want to feel. And every now and then there's a documentary that comes out or a commercial that sort of evokes something inside of us that reminds us that there are people worse off than we are. But by and large, we've shut ourselves off. We've created our own divide. And no one can miss a rich man. If you've ever passed someone who lives in a giant house, drives a fancy car, you can't miss them. You see them evidently. But we can often miss the poor. And if God loves and accepts the marginalized and the forgotten and the poor, then what does it demand of us? We have a responsibility. We have an opportunity. And it's easy to ignore someone until we hear their needs. And God loves the outcast and the downtrodden. And maybe this story is about Lazarus. It's easy for us to go, well, if it's not about the rich man, maybe it's about Lazarus because Lazarus was in need and, and we gotta make sure that we help the people in need. And we do, and that's certainly a, a component of the story. But when Jesus tells stories, they're meta-stories, they're layers, and he's, the story's never the story. The main character's never the main character. And in order to dig down deep enough to find what Jesus is trying to tell us, we get to Luke 16, 27. Father, he said to them, I beg to you, send Lazarus 
to my father's house. Here the rich man, begging for water. Can't give you water, just give me a drop. We can't, we can't cross over. The chasm was too great. You had your time, you had your opportunity. Now the man is begging for Lazarus to go to his father's house. Why? Because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. We start out assuming the stories about the rich man. And we shift and go, well, maybe it's really about the poor man. And then all of a sudden, the revelation comes. It's really not about either We start out assuming and we we move to a certain place. It's about power or wealth or money or whatever. And then the story sheds light on the power shift about what happens when we die. And there's this uh, idea that, you know, we go with God or away from God. And we don't want to be away from God for eternity. And then the story encourages us to then begin to look at the people that are here. The people around us. And how we use the resources that we have now to make sure everyone comes to the knowledge of who Jesus is. The rich man's already done. He's in heaven, or hell rather, and he he can't come out. He's there. Lazarus is in heaven. He's there. He can't come down. But there are people here and now in the story that can still reach the brothers. We assume that maybe the story is about Lazarus, but it's not. It's about his opportunity while he was here. It's about the five brothers and what they could be uh, opening their eyes to, the reality that hell is a real place and it's not uh, desirable. And at the end of the story, we realize that that. All this rich man wants to do is warn everybody else. Don't let him come here. Don't let him be here. The invisible man's story is about our stereotypes, about how we uh, put people away instead of reaching them for Christ. The opportunity every time we pass someone and talk to someone, we can share the love of Jesus with them so that no one has to be placed in the same situation. It's about the work that we do here and now to reach those now that are disconnected from Christ. It's about the time and the resources we spend here on earth making sure that people know that God's there for them. And we stop ignoring the lost. We stop getting disconnected from the the unchurched or the unchristian. And we start beginning to see that God has placed us here for this moment in time in history for a reason, for a purpose, to make a difference. The question then is, are we going to take every opportunity to fulfill the calling that God's placed on us? In Luke 4, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And he reads this, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's interesting is that uh, in Luke 4, Jesus is referencing Isaiah's prophecy. And in uh, Isaiah 61, Jesus is uh, recalling this prophecy. And he's saying, this is why I've came. Jesus describes several aspects of his mission. First and foremost, he came to proclaim good news to the poor. This is first and foremost what Jesus is saying he came to do. That Throughout Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, he emphasizes care for the poor, the needy, the downtrodden. Second, Jesus came to free captives, to liberate the oppressed. Now I wonder which one we are. Has Jesus come for us because We're poor, and maybe it's not poor in money. Maybe it's poor in spirit. Or are we oppressed? Do we need to be liberated? Regardless, Jesus is saying, I came to do these two things. Jesus reminds us that the Spirit has empowered him to cross cultural barriers, 
He's empowered him to bring the message of Jesus Christ of justice and liberation and salvation. And he's entrusted us with the same message. He's entrusted us with the same opportunities for us to effectively go out and proclaim the good news to the poor and to proclaim the the freedom that can come for those who are in captivity. But the focus has shifted. It's shifted from the afterlife to this present life. With the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's talking about what happens when you die. And then it shifts quickly to what's happening right here and now. Will we take our opportunities serious to reach our neighbors for Christ? To desire to make heaven and take as many people with us as we can. We've been anointed to preach the good news to the poor here and now. And what we do here has eternal repercussions. It does. And it's easy to lose sight and I, growing up, I always thought about heaven and hell, and it was sometimes, whether it was meant to be or not, a, a, a fear tactic to uh, make sure you were moral at work. So uh, I guess there's that. But uh, there was a lot of fear of hell and, and a lot of anticipation in heaven and what it's going to look like. And, and I feel like there's less emphasis now, but the reality is so many people around us are living in their own versions of hell. A lake of fire might be a relief if you go to a third world country and you see someone hasn't eaten and they're watching their children suffer. That's hell in real life. That we need to look around and recognize the fact that there are people that are living in their own versions of hell here and now. And you and I have the opportunity to help, to assist. It's one of the reasons why we partnered with um, the way sending shoeboxes over uh, to other countries. It's just one opportunity for us to say, hey, we know this is not ideal, but God loves you, and this is a small representation of his love for you. There's opportunities we build in every time we uh, tithe here. We give a portion of our uh, tithe to missions, foreign missions, to take care of missionaries and, and their work around the world, that you and I have opportunities right here locally to make sure that we're helping people. I know we can't help everybody, I mean, this, we were out shopping, and there's a guy playing the violin with a story, and, and I don't know if his story's real or not, but the idea is we can't help everyone. We can't ignore everyone either. And at some point, we have to come to a place where we begin to realize we're playing with life here and death. This is about something bigger than what's happening right here. And this reinforces the importance of what we do here on earth with our time, with our money, with our resources that heaven and hell are real and we should want to make heaven. We all should understand that hell is an option for others as well and we've got to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The five brothers represent our community, our neighbors, the person sitting around you, the people that you pass. There are people waiting to hear the gospel and unless we tell them, how will they hear? And this is a wonderful opportunity as we move into the Christmas season Because people are more susceptible, they're more open to the gospel, they're feeling feelings more often. The the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed everywhere in song and and in nativity scenes and everything. It's right in front of all of us this season. So it's a great opportunity for us to connect the season to the the, the person that we celebrate through this season. But if we only have eyes for the rich man, we'll always be blind to Lazarus. If we're only looking for those that are of power and wealth and fame, then we'll never see the Lazarus. But here's the thing, both need Jesus. We've been given this responsibility to love both the rich and the poor. And Jesus' stories, they get us involved in the story. The story is not disconnected from us, but it's a part of us. The invisible story is a call to repentance. 
Repentance is the only way that we begin to see the needs around us. Humbling ourselves, recognizing that we all have needs in this room. If we were to take a a poll of all the needs that we have, we would all have some need in some capacity. But at some point we have to go, let's meet others' needs in the midst of our own need. Sometimes we have to work uh, to help others in the midst of our own desires. If we wait for us to never have a need before we help others, we'll never help others because we'll always have a need. But we've got to repent. God, forgive me where I've only lived for self, where I've only had eyes for the things that I want or I think I need or even I need. And help me understand how you see people. Help me reach people the way that you desire for me to reach people. We've got to repent, but the term repent means to turn around. It means to change your mind. It means we no longer walk this way. We go this way. And so I want to call us as a community of faith, as God's people, to repentance today. I want to call us to turn around, to change our minds, to spend just a few minutes this morning being grateful for the opportunities that we have, the reality that you're here and if you've connected your life with Christ, uh, be reminded of how important that is. That God has called you and you've answered the call and you've allowed him to be into your life and you're following him. But now understand what that demands of us. I want us to spend a few minutes walking in repentance. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. Almighty God, It's in your mercy that you've given us your son, Jesus, to die for us and to forgive us all of our sins. So we confess this morning that we're in bondage to sin and we cannot free ourselves. We sinned against you in thought, word, deed, and action by what we've done and what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. God, we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves and so for the sake of your son Jesus Christ have mercy on us forgive us renew us and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name So God, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for sins he did not commit. We pray for your mercy and grace as we navigate the nuances of life. May we not merely live for self, but may our eyes be open to the needs around us and maybe be willing to step in and assist in whatever capacity we can, not for our own glory, but for your glory alone. So we praise you and we thank you. Jesus' name. Let's sing this together. If you would stand.